All right, we are back for our third and final segment. We do want to wish a happy birthday this week to actor Norman Lloyd. Mr. Lloyd turned 95 on Tuesday, and I had a chance to meet him uh, last May at that wonderful event featuring Ray Bradbury and Norman Corwin, two of the, the greatest interviews we've ever had for this program, uh, an event in, uh, in Beverly Hills featuring William Shatner, uh, Walter Koenig, and Norman Lloyd uh, doing an old TV drama written by Ray Bradbury in the 1960s based on uh, the Moby Dick uh, story, kind of a Moby Dick in space. But uh, I had a chance to speak with Mr. Lloyd, and we talked about having him come on this program, perhaps, and I had no idea he was 95 years of age. Someone had told me he was 70, I would have believed it. But his birthday was mentioned in the Sacramento Bee, so I thought we would offer a toast. And oddly enough, I noticed uh, that, uh, that, little artic- that little mention in the Sacramento Bee and flipped on, uh, by chance, an old episode of Saint Elsewhere, which, uh, in which Norman Lloyd uh, played one of the physicians in the hospital. That really was an excellent show in so many ways, probably the best show about doctors I've ever seen uh, on television. And there was Norman Lloyd, uh, former protege of uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, did many of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents shows back in the 1950s on this 1970s TV show, looking 70. Of course, he probably was 70 back then. And doggone it, I ought to get a hold of his agent and see if we can't, uh, can't speak with him. He was, he was a very nice man to talk to, and I, I think that would be very enjoyable. We'll, we'll have to see what we can do about that. Let's do a couple obituaries. We mentioned there have been so many in the past few months we have not been able to keep up. We would refer you to the excellent Vanity Fair article in the current edition about the late, great Dominic Dunn. Mr. Dunn apparently found his voice uh, as a writer when, tragically, he had to take part in the trial of his daughter's murderer. And the anger he felt at, uh, at the guy getting basically three years for manslaughter after strangling his daughter uh, did, at least on the upside of that, bring out some fine, fine writing. That's all we'll say about Mr. Dunn today. We, we would like to return to him in the future. But let's talk about Jack Nelson, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, legendary reporter, passed away a couple weeks ago. His obituary noted that reporting in 1970 for the L.A. Times, Jack Nelson discovered the FBI and police in Meridian, Mississippi had shot two Ku Klux Klan members in a sting operation. Hoping to suppress the story, FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover smeared Nelson as a drunk, but the piece nevertheless ran on page one. Two years later, Nelson reported on the FBI's use of an agent provocateur in its investigation of Philip Berrigan and other peace activists known as the Harrisburg Seven. Hoover again sought without success to have Jack Nelson fired. As a young reporter, Nelson uh, won the Pulitzer Prize while working for the Atlanta Constitution for a series on uh, Georgia's Midgeville Central State Hospital for the Mentally Ill. When he exposed an array of abuses that included nurses who were allowed to perform major surgery, the Times picked him up and he opened up the Atlanta Bureau for them, began covering the civil rights demonstrations in Selma, Alabama. Nelson clashed with the Nixon administration in 1972 when he scored an exclusive interview with ex-FBI agent Alfred Baldwin III, who had witnessed the break-in at Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate. 
In his interview with Nelson, Baldwin told him about being recruited by ex-CIA agent James McCord and meeting G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt and monitoring wiretaps on Democratic phones. Prosecutors persuaded Judge John Sirica to issue a gag order on the scoop, but the Times appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in its favor. Ladies and gentlemen, that story of Watergate, the full story, has never come out. And um, that interlude about with Alfred Baldwin is quite fascinating. We're going to have to see if our... uh, our L.A. investigative journalists uh, Jim DiEugenio and Lisa Pease want to round out that story because I know, I know that uh, Jack Nelson was on to something. Nelson was described as uh, a newsman from the old school. He used to say that while opinion writers have their place, the highest journalistic calling was to be a reporter, to reveal facts that those in power won hidden from the public. And uh, The Economist often scores some of the most fascinating obituaries. Uh, They noted the passing of Richard Sonnenfeld a couple weeks ago, a man I'd never heard of, but apparently was the chief interpreter at the Nuremberg Trials. He died earlier this month at the age of 86. But according to The Economist, Mr. Sonnenfeld back in 1945... uh, A young man in 1945, age 22, had such uh, profound linguistic skills that that for three months before the Nuremberg trials began, he was involved in the evidence gathering and some of the uh, interrogations in a a rather uh, important role. In fact, the young man's official label was chief interpreter, but it was noted that uh, the less officially, his job was to startle, harass, and trick the accusing into admitting what they had done. Magazine noted that translation inevitably slowed the questions, allowing the accused to develop their denials, but Sonnenfeld's sharpness made up in part for that. Was it true, he asked Hermann Goering, Reichsmarshal, that he had boasted to Hitler that he had torched the Reichstag himself in 1933? Just one of my jokes, said Goering. Tell me another joke you told Hitler, said Sonnenfeld. Goering did not reply. Sonnenfeld was uh, reportedly uh, contemptuous of the other interpreters at Nuremberg, who, uh, who's basically, uh, their thick syntax would, would, would fuddle uh, questioner and questioned alike. By contrast, Sonnenfeld was so good that he could deal in subtlety. The article noted that uh, he found he did not hate the German people, nor did he actually hate the Nazis individually, although apparently he made an exception for Jules Stryker, noted that what chilled him was the ordinariness of the men. When he served them their indictments on October 20th in 1945, going from cell to cell, he noticed that their hands were clean. These men were not evidently monsters. They also knew good from bad and right from wrong. When he asked Rudolf Hirsch, commandant of Auschwitz, whether he was ever tempted to enrich himself from his inmates, Hirsch replied, What kind of man do you think I am? Apparently, Sonnenfeld spent a lot of time with, uh, with Hermann Goering and, and was disappointed when the judges at uh, in Nuremberg failed to nail him for ordering the Holocaust. The obituary closed, noting that, uh, Sonner, that uh, Sonnenfeld did other things later in life. He was an electrical engineer, helped develop color television, helped develop computers for the moon landings. He supposed, however, that he would be remembered only for his Nuremberg days, and that, he always said, was all right with him. This week's show, I couldn't put my hands on the letter written uh, 
in the same vein as our discussion of that uh, Sacramento Bee piece on casinos, but I found it now, written by a Steve Soto. I'd like to excerpt it. Wrote Mr. Soto, regarding casino promotions, page A1 of your October 18th edition, with Afghanistan and healthcare reform being two of the major stories facing this country, the editors on Sunday devoted a large part of the front page and the entire back page of the front section to an only positive story on the perks tribal casinos give frequent gamblers. Plus, to be even more helpful, the online version gave readers a handy map of where to find the casinos and another link summarizing all the freebies. Why was this public relations masquerading as news in the front section? Could it have something to do with the large ads in the same edition? One, a banner ad on the front page of the sports section, another half-page ad in the living health section, bought by two of the casinos touted in the story. Between that coverage and the 30% of the front section dedicated to full-page ads from vendors who purchased jewelry and coins, the B only had space on page A13 for President Barack Obama's pushback against deceptive health industry ads. Anyone looking for answers as to why the public may be misinformed on the healthcare debate need look no further than Sunday's B. Well, well said, Mr. Soto, well said. And I must say, I have seen a proliferation of, let's just say, some unusual ads in uh, our uh, local Sacramento B. I've noticed some dubious health practitioners trying to use so-called cold lasers to do all kinds of things. As far as this uh, physician can see, the, uh, the, the main pain that uh, cold lasers remove from a person uh, comes when he has an overstuffed wallet putting a lot of uh, pressure on the buttock area. Cold laser treatments will help with that. Anyway, we're running out of time, so I guess you better answer that question at the top of the show about how long it takes to traverse the distance to the moon if we're moving in a straight line. Well, here's the math. Moon's about a quarter of a million miles away. In one hour, the Earth moves two-thirds of a million miles. So given the Earth's inherent velocity through space orbiting the sun, we can get to the moon in about 20 minutes. We also mentioned and we talked about what happened on this date that Voyager 1 discovered all those rings on Saturn. Well, here's an item for you. A ring of debris in space, 2.4 million kilometers from edge to edge, should be hard to miss. Yes? Well, apparently not. Since, this, since one this thick has been spotted orbiting Saturn, it's the biggest ring found in our solar system so far. Now, it turns out this ring is very tenuous and, and very hard to see, and it took the Spitzer Space Telescope to spot it uh, out uh, in the orbit of Saturn. In fact, they had to use its infrared glow to, to find the ring because it would be very difficult to see in visible light, but it's there. And apparently the stuff uh, in that ring uh, winds up coating Saturn's moon Iapetus. And if you're a sci-fi fan, you'll note that Arthur C. Clarke proposed that uh, Saturn's moon Iapetus had an artificial side that was bright white and one that was dark from uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, sadly, it's not to be. Apparently the leading edge of the moon is plowing into this dust and uh, is darkened by that, and the trailing edge uh, remains like a big snowball, white. So one side's black, one side's white more or less, and uh, 
We refer you to the internet to look at some of the uh, space photos by Cassini taken of Iapetus. They're pretty striking. The moon looks like a giant walnut. And I'm sorry to note, we are out of time. Our thanks to Jeff Russell. We're glad his relay for the bay was a big success, and we hope that we'll follow it more closely next year. Our thanks also to Will Durst. Will has agreed to talk to us in the future about some of those great, iconic comedians of the San Francisco scene back in the 1960s, hopefully in conjunction with a talk we're planning with Gerald Nachman, the author of Seriously Funny, the rebel comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Thanks for listening.